0: This is a Federal News Network podcast.
1: For better or worse, public administration and the people who carry it out regularly deal with employee unions. Do unions help or hinder that public administration? In the first of a four-part series, Federal Unions, for better or worse, we get the perspective of someone who has studied this issue for a good part of 50 years. He's Distinguished Professor Emeritus at Indiana University, Dr. James Perry. Jim, good to have you back.
2: Thanks, Tom. Good to be with you.
1: And how would you summarize what you have learned in so many years of studying public administration and the role of unions in that whole complex?
2: Well, my work with federal unions goes back to the Civil Service Reform Act of 1978 when I was one of the um, primary evaluation contracts for OPM. And we did study labor management relations, although to be honest, we spent a lot more time on performance appraisal, merit pay, and other issues that were sort of the core of CSRA. And the labor relations part was essentially uh, moving into law what had been executive order prior to that time. One of the things I've learned, I think, is that The quality of labor management relations depends fundamentally on the nature of the legal and regulatory process, what I refer to as institutional arrangements. And I think with respect to federal labor relations, I think we have a real problem. I believe that we are ultimately interested in trying to achieve collaboration between labor and management, but I don't see the institutional arrangements, particularly the idea of dueling executive orders when we move from Democrat presidents to Republican presidents and back again, as functional for developing the quality of labor management relations that we would seek in a high-functioning public service.
1: Sure. In many ways, it's like someone with one foot in boiling oil and the other foot on dry ice. And on average, they're doing fine. But in fact, it's really not a great situation.
2: Right. But, you know, I do think that there's a key role for unions in the federal workplace. And one of the interesting facts, I think, is that we have about five times more or a higher percentage of union members in the public sector than the private, which suggests that, among other things, that public officials and legislative entities are more receptive uh, to unionization as a Part of the workplace. But I think they do have a sort of a fundamental place in the federal workplace. And I think that's important both for fairness that is, I don't like the idea of federal or other public employees being second-class citizens because they work for a government entity. And so I think out of fairness, it's important that employees have the right for collective action and the opportunity to work with labor organizations. And then I really do think ultimately they do improve the quality of what happens in the workplace if the institutional arrangements are conducive to creating in the long run a high quality of collaboration between labor and management.
1: And institutional arrangements, maybe define that a little bit more closely for us.
2: Well, one is the law. And uh, if we look, for instance, at the last two presidencies, we've had a shift from, for instance, the assumption of the legitimacy of labor organizations – to the rejection of the legitimacy of labor organizations and membership in unions. We saw attacks during the Trump administration on the very legitimacy of labor organizations and membership in them, which is, I think, a fundamental problem for anybody who's seeking to develop effective strategies to uh, coexist and to function effectively with collective organizations like labor unions.
1: We are speaking with Dr. Jim Perry, Professor Emeritus at Indiana University. Let me ask you this. At their very best, what can unions bring to the federal workplace and to the efficient operations of public administration, I think is how President Kennedy put it?
2: Well, at their very best, I think they do several things. One is that they are great sources for what we would think of as preference aggregation. That is, rather than thinking in terms of individuals, we think about what is best for the sort of the collective interests of the members of an organization. So unions are great entities being effectively democratic organizations for aggregating preferences. I think they're also effective for holding management accountable. I think a great example of holding management accountable in the early part of this millennium is the National Security Personnel System and Max HR.
1: Oh, remember that uh, one. Yep.
2: Two new sets of policies that were brought to uh, the Department of Defense and the Department of Homeland Security, and they were faulty in a variety of ways, and the union said, you need to get this right. If you're not going to get this right, we're going to fight you tooth and nail. And that made good sense because they violated, among other things, what we know about good management and how to motivate employees in the public sector. And yet the administration was proceeding with that, and the union said, no, uh, you can't do that. And so by representing the interest of their members and holding management accountable, they were able to undo, I think, some significant damage to uh, government. Now the other area I think where they can be very effective and supportive of the sort of the best interests of citizens is creating novel and innovative options for how the workplace is managed and organized. This is what maybe, what we often refer to as collaboration. But I think some of the union positions and the union activities related to telework which we tried to avoid up until the pandemic. But then when the pandemic struck, we've discovered, hey, telework is not as bad as people depicted it, people on the management side or people running the organizations. And therefore, let's take another look at it. And I think the unions were very effective we're sort of bringing management to recognize the two sides of telework, the problem with monitoring employees, but on the other hand, the fact that telework creates a variety of options for employees that are attractive to employees. And ultimately, what labor and management need to be thinking about is what i refer to and what's been referred to since i was a graduate well well before i was a graduate student as integrative solutions we've come to know the integrative solutions now as win-win solutions but unions can be helpful in moving management toward those win-win solutions as opposed to the win-lose solutions that are so common to labor management relations The problem is, again, going back to the institutional arrangements, I do not see the institutional arrangements, particularly in the federal sector, as being conducive to moving both labor and management toward collaboration, toward integrative solutions, toward the win-win results we want to achieve in the relationship between management and these collective entities.
1: And are there situations when unions might be counterproductive? Are they always great friends like that?
2: no uh, i see them becoming great friends and and the literature points this out this is sort of an organic process they start fighting one another tooth and nail they move toward compromise then they ultimately get to collaboration so i think it's important to look at that process of moving from denying the other party to compromise to win-win solutions as being a natural evolutionary process and the question is how do the institutional arrangements support that The area where unions, I think, can be problematic is that they are representative entities, they are political entities, and therefore they cannot differentiate employee claims on their merits. That is, the unions exist to represent the interests of their members and therefore have to play their roles, perform their duties, regardless of the merit of a member's claim. You know, that's something like a defense counsel where you have to represent the rights of your client regardless of their guilt or innocence. And that's also true for unions. Now, we see, I think, some extremes of that. For instance, the debates recently about rogue police officers and police unions supporting rogue police officers or incompetent teachers being supported by teacher unions. But I think that's part of the functioning of the union. It's one that we are interested in trying to find ways around or beyond and to find ways, for instance, where labor management might be able to support high employee performance in ways that are responsive to each of their interests and at the same time, you know, move forward in their collective relationship. But certainly this inability to differentiate employee claims on their merits leads to lots of issues between labor and management, but I think it needs to be understood in those terms. That is, it's like a defense counsel uh, supporting the needs or interests of his or her client.
1: In general, what are the best strategies for managers to negotiate and otherwise deal day-to-day with unions and unionized employees?
2: Well, I already mentioned one, assume the legitimacy of the other party. Uh, That was something that was denied repeatedly, and the press is sort of filled with uh, reports of this, denied repeatedly in the last administration. We need to find ways of assuring that uh, if unions are going to exist in the federal sector, that they are perceived to be legitimate regardless of who comes into the White House. The second thing is that management needs to listen to and resolve conflicts where it's appropriate to resolve conflicts. If management has somebody who's engaging in malfeasance or misfeasance, that's in management's interest to do something about that supervisor or do something about that work situation. So conflicts need to be resolved when it's appropriate to resolve those conflicts. And then the third item is one I've already touched on, and that is We need to frame issues in integrative or win-win terms, not simply distributive or win-lose terms. And if we move toward what's been classically referred to as integrative bargaining, we're going to get some good results. And the unions are going to be part of that, and management and citizens and the American electorate is going to be the winner uh, rather than union or management. And so we need to think about how do we get to situations where we can develop more integrative relationships. And I know uh, uh, people like uh, Bob Tobias uh, have written recently about the importance of collaboration. He and I are in uh, agreement on that. And you know, Bob is, I think, one of the great union leaders, uh, not only in the federal sector, but globally. And he has insights about that, but we disagree about how we get there. And We don't get there simply by claiming that we need to collaborate. We have to get there organically as a part of an evolution of the relationship between labor and management under a suitable set of institutional arrangements that is laws and regulations that get us to uh solutions for the public.
1: Dr. James Perry is Professor Emeritus at Indiana University. Thanks so much for joining me.
2: Hey, thanks, Tom. Great to be with you. We'll
1: post this in all of our interviews in my series, Federal Unions, for better or worse, at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows.
3: Welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Rick Wade, Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Previously, Rick was a Senior Advisor and Deputy Chief of Staff to Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke. He worked closely with the Obama Administration, and he also worked with Commerce's Economic Development Administration to foster regional economic development in distressed areas and with the Minority Business Development Agency to create jobs through the growth of minority-owned businesses. He received a B.S. from the University of South Carolina and an M.P.A. from Harvard University. Rick, welcome and thanks so much for joining me.
0: And thank you so much for having me. Look forward to the conversation. terribly difficult challenge one of the other defining uh, moments i think in our time uh that has dictated uh a change in leadership if you will uh was the murder of george floyd i think it created a whole different consciousness uh in america and certainly within me uh about the importance of being empathetic uh in uh in in the way i lead to be inclusive uh to be uh to, to lead in a way uh in which you're very sensitive to the impact of your decisions So, there have been so many defining moments uh, uh, in my career. I, I will tell you, even uh, after the murder of George Floyd and my role at the US Ch- Chamber of Commerce uh, to galvanize the business community uh, inspired by that tragedy. And now we have a whole broad, historic, sweeping, what we call equality of opportunity initiative that I'm leading, that I, that, that, that I was inspired to develop. And we're bringing together corporations from across America
3: I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Thank you for listening to today's Lessons in Leadership podcast. And until we see you next time, take good care. Grab a 30
0: day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.